Amen. Thanks, TA. Hi, LCF. My name is Wagonar Benjamin, and I am the husband of one wife, and I come from the town of Grimsby in southern Ontario, Canada. Now, that may sound like a strange introduction, but an introduction like that would be an example of one from a speaker that we would have on a morning devotional when I worked at a Bible school in Uganda. <clears throat> Often in our Western culture, we value doing over being. For example, a common topic of introductory conversation among men in America is, where do you work? What do you do? I introduced my family name first, which honors my family, disclosing knowledge of self through family, that I am married to one wife, Joelle, and in the context of a culture that would not frown so much upon polygamy or having a mistress on the side, that would be notable to, to establish that Christian distinctive in relationship to one wife. That I'm from the town of Grimsby in Canada, which if you knew this town could potentially disclose information about my social status, my character, or even my diet. In the US, our primary identity often defaults to our accomplishments and our sense of well-being derived from our ability to do. But in the Bible, Jesus teaches that our primary identity is found in who he is, what he has done, and how we relate to him. Jesus establishes one of our primary identities in this passage as sons of God, and God as our Father. Now, this isn't to create a contention or contrast between Western and Eastern cultures or between doing and being. I'm not trying to create that contention or that contrast. But I want us to know that if being is not foundational to who we are, this could potentially be disastrous. Brothers and sisters, build God's kingdom by knowing and enjoying your Heavenly Father in the place of prayer. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13? It says this in the CSB. He was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, Whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. And verse 5, he also said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine is on a journey and has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't give, get up and give him anything because he is his friend, Yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? My first point today is pray because Jesus has made you a disciple. 
Verse one reads, he was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Jesus valued prayer. The book of Luke records five different times prior to this occurrence where Jesus is found praying. And on this sixth occurrence, the disciples say to him, Jesus, teach us to pray. They wanted to imitate and emulate their rabbi and their savior. The prayer that follows in our text is specifically for disciples. Now we see in Luke 9 and 10 that uh, there's distinguishing markers for a disciple. These past two, two chapters show that a disciple is one who believes in who Jesus is. That Luke trumpets that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, which means the coming King and the eternal Son of God. Jesus is qualified to be the Redeemer of humanity. And not only is it a confession of who Jesus is, but it's about following Jesus. It means giving up one's life for Jesus, bearing one's cross. It means listening to Jesus' words. It means acknowledging the inability to present oneself as righteous before God, as we read in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And most importantly, it means receiving the work that Jesus did on the cross as we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we know that for the disciples, this was a future act, but that Jesus establishes that the centrality of relationship with him had to do with the work that he was going to complete in Jerusalem. This prayer that we read here is for disciples. And so I ask you, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple? If not, the book of Luke teaches what it looks like to become a, um, become a disciple. And Brian talked about it this morning. It's calling upon the name of the Lord, calling upon the name of Jesus because of who he is, fully God, the one to redeem, and what he has done on the cross. That's what makes you a disciple. Not what you've done, but what he's done and how you relate to him. And if you are a disciple, you get to pray. You get to pray. This isn't a sermon about another spiritual discipline for you to do. This is a teaching on what it is that you get to do as disciples. And it is our joy to be able to pray. It's not something that we do to gain righteousness, to be super spiritual, to check that list off during the day. Rather, it's a response to God the Father pursuing you in Christ Jesus because he wants your heart, he wants your attention, he wants your affection, and he wants to move in your life. So how? What do I say to God? I can imagine the heart of Jesus being moved in this moment when the disciples say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And now he gets to reflect on the relationship that he has with God the Father. And he's thinking to himself of his oneness with the Father, of his trust in the Father, of his intimacy with the Father. And he's, th he's thinking, I get to usher them into this. How beautiful that is. And his heart is moved in this moment. And so he gives content to this prayer. Let's read verses 2 through 4. Jesus said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. 
Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. Brothers and sisters, pray to the Father because Jesus has called you into the glory of sonship and to build God's kingdom. Now, this section is very theologically dense. There are many phrases here that carry themes throughout the book of Luke. And so I'm going to unpack that with four particular statements. Number one, prayer to the Father is living in the restoration of the image of God. One of the themes of the Gospel of Luke is on the restoration of the image of God through Jesus for humanity. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that phrase, the image of God, that comes from Genesis chapter 1 where God made humanity male and female in his image. And that meant that they were to relate to God as creator king, and they were to establish God's kingdom on the earth. He said, fill the earth and subdue it. And so there was this dominion that they were to have in establishing that God was king and that they were to show that this is what God is like in how they related to one another and how they related to the world to establish his kingdom. Part of that meant obedience to God. Now we know that Adam failed at that, that God gave the command not to eat of the knowledge of, or not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam chose instead to fall into the the temptation of Satan. And it wasn't just a fall into temptation like this, this one time mistake. It was Adam's agreement with Satan that he could make himself equal with God and that the establishment of his own kingdom would be a better situation than God's kingdom. It was an agreement with Satan to build the kingdom of darkness. And that's what we call sin. Sometimes we think of sin in very weak terms, like, okay, maybe I lied a little bit. It's kind of a gray lie. But sin is rebellion against God, it's agreement with Satan, and it's building the kingdom of darkness. So when you lie, you're declaring as an image bearer of God that God is a liar. When you lust, you are declaring that God is a God who uses people and is not committed to their well-being. And so what would be the response of a righteous king seeking to reestablish his kingdom? The right response of a creator king would be wrath and judgment. That's what we rightfully deserve as image bearers. A king that comes in to another kingdom that's trying to supplant him is righteous judgment. That's the right response of a king. And yet... God's response instead is a plan of redemption. This is grace. As the narrative unfolds, God's plan begins to unfold, but we see that humanity fails. Adam fails. God's chosen people, Israel, fail. Every human being fails along this narrative from Genesis to Malachi and now enter Jesus. Luke talks about Jesus after his baptism and the declaration that he is the beloved son of God. Luke records the genealogy from Joseph to Adam and labels Adam uniquely as the son of God. Now we would say Jesus as the beloved son, capital S, fully God, 
and Adam, we use a lowercase s because we know he's fully human. And so Jesus enters in as the Son of God, uniquely qualified to redeem all of humanity because of the failure of the lowercase s, Son of God, Adam. Jesus restores the image of God in our life. His perfect life, his taking of our punishment for rebellion upon himself at the cross, now disciples get to call on God as Father. You don't get to do that when you have not called upon the name of Jesus. He establishes you in the family of God, taking the punishment for your sin so that you now are called a son. Now, maybe you're a female here and you're like, I don't want to be called a son. That's weird. This aspect of sonship is what it looks like for us to walk in the inheritance that God has for us. That it, It's a qualification for us to be in, in inheritors. There's a better word for that. Uh, ones that inherit God's blessings. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 3 and 4. When he says that because of Christ bearing the curse of our sin for us, we are now qualified to receive the promise of the Holy Spirit, that we're able to call on God now as Father because we are sons. So if you feel like maybe the, the men get the, the privileged position, don't worry, ladies. We are actually also called the bride of Christ. So men, you get to relate on what it means to be the bride of Christ. So there's, you know, we can keep the scales even here. You get to now call on God as Father as image bearers renewed by Jesus. Okay, that was a long point for one word. We're going to move a little quicker here. Number two, pray to the Father because you get to build God's kingdom. Two big phrases, your name be honored as holy and your kingdom come. God's name means his personhood, his being, his doing, that God would be revered, worshipped, trusted. Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 36 that God would vindicate the holiness of his name. Because of our sinfulness as image bearers, we see that God's name in Romans chapter 2 is blasphemed among the Gentiles. And so God will make his name holy. He does that specifically through the name of Jesus Christ. So that calling on the name of Jesus is God's first course of action to make his name holy. That when we call on Jesus to save, we are calling on the name of the Lord to save us. Hallelujah. This is what God will do. As we call on Jesus and are saved, his name is made holy in our lives. Your kingdom come. This is the exaltation of Jesus over all wickedness and evil. Now, both of these requests are both immediate and they're not yet. Both uh, in the immediate, that in our salvation, in the coming of Jesus, in the establishment of his kingdom, through transformed lives, transformed societies, his kingdom comes. And yet there is a not yet. We know Jesus will come again to fully vanquish all of his enemies. And so in this text, we, when we pray, hallowed be thy name and your kingdom come, we're praying for God to move now and our hearts are beckoning for the coming of a savior. Number three, prayer to the Father results in met needs. In this, we ask for daily bread and this includes both physical and spiritual that this, this phrase alludes to manna in the wilderness. And so we know that that is a, 
a picture of physical sustenance, but we know that the early church also used this text to talk about spiritual sustenance, that we need spiritual bread, asking for forgiveness and a commitment to forgive, that this isn't me needing to try to join the family of God by asking for forgiveness. This isn't a salvation every time that I pray this, but this is me coming before my Father and confessing the truth of what's going on in my heart. That when there are things out of agreement with his word, with his character, that I, I tell my father about that and I ask him to forgive me for that. That that is a heart posture, that that is an intimacy builder. And then through that forgiveness, now we forgive others. And lastly, asking for protection. The temptation in the book of Luke is not a matter of refinement. It's actually a matter of a faith-destroying event. So when Jesus teaches the parable of the sower, the seed that fell on rocky soil is the seed that took root, that sprouted, but withered away. And Jesus explains that that's the one who receives the word with joy, but because of trial, it withered away. It fell away. Later on in Luke's gospel, uh, Luke records Jesus commanding his disciples, pray that you don't fall into temptation when they were in the garden. That our prayer is a confession of our weakness. It's a confession that our hearts are prone to wander. And it's asking the Father, Father, keep me. Father, sustain my heart in you. Those three things, when we look at being an image bearer, when we look at building God's kingdom, when we look at having our, our needs met, lead to the fourth one. And this is heart change. And this is something that undergirds all of the prayer that we see in, the, in this passage. Our hearts change as we pray. When I pray... Father, make your name holy. There is immediately a check. Do I really care about that? Do I really know what that means, first of all? Because that's very abstract biblical language. Do I know what that means? And do I really care about that? God, build your kingdom. Is that my primary motivation in my life, to build your kingdom? This isn't about an experience of guilt or shame that that what I'm praying falls far short of the condition of my heart, but actually praying changes my heart. When I ask God for daily bread, I am acknowledging my need for his provision, for his sustenance. When I ask God for his forgiveness, my heart changes because now I get to agree that his word is right, my ways are wrong, and this is what happens in the place of prayer. It is a sweet, sweet gift from God that as we talk to him, that our hearts are changed in that place. And that is a gift. Beloved, you get to be a son. Jesus makes new God's image in his followers through who he is and what he has done. And your prayer life exemplifies this renewal as you call on your father. Pray to the father because Jesus has called you into the glory of sonship and to build God's kingdom. So Jesus just gave the disciples the content of their prayer and ushered them into the knowledge of their sonship. But what is the Father like? 
and will he answer them? Let's look at verses 5 through 10. He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Brothers and sisters, pray to the Father confidently, knowing he listens and responds. So we start here with a parable. And this parable is very far removed from our culture. I thought about going to Tim Fritzen's house at midnight and pounding on the door and asking for three, for three loaves of bread just to see if I'm right on this. But I think I can confidently say that this is far removed from our time, our culture, that this would never happen. We have Walmarts open 24 hours. We have Uber Eats that we can call to get some food. This is not a problem. So let me unpack this a little bit with four, uh, four facets of this parable uh, and their culture that will help us understand. Hospitality. High value on the honor of hosting. The man who is unable to host has a big problem. Friendship. This is mentioned several times in the parable. And and in the Greco-Roman world, friendship involved shared honor and the laying down of self-interest. That is, in an ideal equal friendship. The man knocking on the door should have confidence that he will be helped. The home. A one-room floor. Everyone sleeping, no electricity, pitch black. Yes, getting up would be a great inconvenience. Honor shame, the worth that one carries in the eyes of the community. And here is where our parable hinges. The key phrase that defines the meaning of the parable is shameless boldness in the, CS, in the CSB. It may have a different translation uh, in the one that you're using. This translates a single Greek word. And it translates shamelessness. Uh, The CSB added boldness because they're making an interpretive decision in that to show, well, I'll talk about what that shows. This shamelessness, because of all the different pronouns we have, we don't know, is it the shamelessness of the person asking or is it the shamelessness of the person inside? Scholars are divided on this. If it's the shamelessness of the person asking, it means that in the middle of the night, he has boldness. He's not ashamed to go ask for something that he needs. So we would see that as an interpretation that, okay, well, he's being bold in his request. He's knocking on the door of a friend. Now, this is not theologically wrong. The trouble with this, though, is that this can easily slide into something that's not true because we can think, even though we're thinking boldness, the person on the inside is reluctant to give. And so we think, well... I need to bother God in order for him to listen to me. And we know that that's not the thrust of this text. I think instead, as we track with what Jesus is doing in this passage, it's about the Father. Will he give? Will he answer? And so if we see shamelessness as relating to the person inside, then it would uh, better be translated I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, 
Yet because of his sole desire to save face, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So what's the meaning? If the friend whose only motivation is to save his image, to save face in the community, if even this one would give, that an argument from lesser to greater is, how much more God? If this joker in the community who undermines a friendship, who undermines what it is to be part of the community, if this guy would give, if he would give as much as he needs, the parable said, can you imagine what God will do? Can you imagine God's response? How much he listens? That's amazing. And so now the resulting statements below is, you will receive, you will find, the door will be opened. This is the confidence that Jesus wants to give us in this time. Okay, I have the relationship, I have the words, I have the confidence that I am listened to, that I am guaranteed a response. But what will be a good response? Or will it be a good response? Can I trust God to have good in store for me? Let's read the last three verses. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Beloved, pray to the father entrusting yourself to his goodness. What does an evil father give? Cruel gifts? Absolutely not. Even an evil father gives good gifts. So how much more our heavenly father Jesus' implication on far better would not withhold the best gift from us. Think about my son. Sorry, I'm smiling about this because this has nothing to do with my sermon. But I think if if Bo asked for a fish and I gave him a snake, he'd probably be pretty excited. And (laughs) if he asked for an egg and I gave him a scorpion, he would also be very excited. So I... It's just hilarious. When we go to the pet store, it's like a free zoo. You go there and, I mean, it's just, it's game on. So, anyways. God's good answer to our requests, the gift of the Holy Spirit. This doesn't always seem like a good gift to me. I'm thinking about the provision that I'm asking for, the healing that I'm asking for, the direction that I'm asking for. I think... Well, that's, that's not a direct answer, God. I, th- those are the things that I want. And you give me the Holy Spirit. Is that being a good father? And yet as my heart processes this gift in light of our passage, the giving of the Holy Spirit is a direct answer to our prayer as a son from verses 2 through 4. That his name be honored, that his kingdom come, that we be led into truth and confession conviction over sin and forgiveness, that we receive God's provision and protection. This is God's immediate answer. My Holy Spirit is for you. What a good father. And not only is this an answer to the prayer that we just prayed or that we just talked about, 
But the context of this passage makes it even more beautiful. Luke 9 and 10 are missional passages, or missional chapters, sorry. That is the sending of the disciples to proclaim the kingdom and to heal the sick. So ultimately, this passage and the gift of the Holy Spirit is going to point ahead to when the disciples receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Numbers 11 in the Old Testament talks about Moses, or talks about God taking from the Spirit upon Moses and giving it to the 70 elders in order for them to serve. That number 70 we see in Luke chapter 10 both points to the event of of the Spirit coming upon the elders, but it's also pointing to the description of the 70 nations that we have in Genesis chapter 10 that Luke incorporates both of these things to show that it is by the Spirit of God that the nations are going to hear, that the name of God is going to be proclaimed, and that this would start with the Spirit coming upon the disciples at Pentecost. The giving of the Spirit is the same Holy Spirit that came to dwell inside of you at your salvation. But it it is a subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit. We see that at Pentecost, the disciples were saved, and yet the Holy Spirit came upon them to witness. In Acts chapter 4, the church is praying. These are believers that have been saved and called upon the Lord, are filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet... It says God's response to their prayer is that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit again. My Western brain has a difficult time working through that. How can I be filled and filled again? I I don't know. But this is the language that the Bible uses to talk about us experiencing God's continuous gift and response to our prayers as he gives the Holy Spirit so that we can proclaim, that we can be witnesses to the nations. Lastly, I want to talk a little bit about the word father. And it's a word that evokes a large spectrum of experiences, a large spectrum of emotions. It is noteworthy to show that Jesus spends three verses talking about what to say and all the rest of the verses upon what the father is like. That our hearts need that that we come to God with lenses about who God is. This is derived from our experience of what our fathers are like. This is derived on what our mothers are like, what people that have been in authority over us, teachers and bosses and coaches. This affects our lens of of how we see our Heavenly Father. And Jesus wants to encounter our hearts in this because it affects not only our prayer life, but it is God the Father saying, I want you. I want you. And so as we unpack our hearts before the Lord, God brings healing to that narrative. I often don't pray when I'm upset. My my proclivity is to fix the situation, 
It's to solve whatever problem is going on, but it's not to run to God. There is still in my heart a thought that I need to clean myself up before I am worthy of his attention. And that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that the Father gave his Son so that you could be with him. It is his desire. Your prayer life is not you trying to gain God's attention. That God would, that Father God would lend you just a little bit of time. The gospel is that the Father is after you. I want you. I gave my son for you. Now come and be with me. That is what Jesus is talking to us about the place of prayer. And beloved, that's hard. I squirm sometimes in the place of prayer. I feel guilty or I feel shame. I feel disqualified. I feel like a hypocrite. And the father's response always is, look at my son. And is he enough to let you rest in my presence? And my confidence grows because I know that I'm a mess, that I'm broken, and yet this one on the cross, he died and rose again. So now I can be at rest in my father. And that's beautiful. It takes time. It takes community. It takes counseling for us to unpack our hearts of our false views of who God is as Father so that we begin to have a growing confidence that this is what He's like. He really answers. He really answers. He really listens. He really enjoys you. He really loves you. That's the place of prayer. I want to take some time to be a little bit practical here. I have no idea what time I'm supposed to be done, to be honest with you. This is the first time I've preached, so hope, hope it goes okay. All right, here we go. Uh, practical. What does it look like in real time to pray? We need to ask questions about the priorities of our lives. The first question is, are you praying? This isn't a question of guilt. Like, hey, if you're a Christian, you should. It's not a question of guilt. Are you praying? And if not, why? And unpack that in your hearts. Because this passage teaches you get to pray. You get to be with your Father to pray. So unpack that for yourself. If you are praying, awesome. I can easily discount my weak prayer life. Joelle and I pray uh, before we go to sleep every night when we're in bed. And honestly, some of those prayers are almost embarrassing. Like, Jesus, thank you for this day. <laughs> like, it's just, we have a three and a half year old at home. We're exhausted. Like, Maybe that's not the best time to pray, but God loves that. It is a heart posture just to be with him and acknowledge him. Don't despise weakness in prayer because God doesn't despise it. Turn in that narrative. 
Bo, he's starting to potty train now. And which praise God for Joelle, because I've almost done nothing in this. And she has the, the patience of an angel. Uh, but one thing we do is we try to get him excited. Like he peed on the potty and we're like, buddy, yes, you did it. So this is kind of, this has been happening for the last week and a half. He really doesn't love potty training, but now he's starting to go in by himself. He'll pee on the potty. He closes the door. He wants to do it by himself. He'll close the door. I'll, he locks it little stinker. So we got to use one of those little things to open up the, the door, the little key things. Um, and, uh, and I'll go in, he'll be done. He'll be standing on the stool beside the sink and he'll be like, yeah. And I, like my only response is, yeah. This excitement catches on for him. And this is the excitement that God, our father has when we come to him. He's not like, hey, that was 59 minutes and 59 seconds. You should have done an hour. That's not the heart of a father. Your weak eye gaze, your weak heart posture to him. He's like, yeah! My son is talking to me. He's with me, sharing their heart. That's the heart of a father. That is a perfect father. So how do you cultivate prayer? Consistency can be helpful every day at such and such a time. You can include journaling. You can include music. You can include activity. Go for a prayer walk. I love playing the guitar in the place of prayer. It helps me because I'm very easily distracted. And so having a kinesthetic thing to do while I pray is really helpful for me. And also, I can bounce between prayer and worship. Walking is really helpful for me as well as a kinesthetic uh, part of it. Ask God for grace. I'm very impressed by my wife's ability to have some time of prayer during the day because I know the energy of my son. And so she'll let him have a toy or she'll put on a show for him and she'll let him know mommy's going to spend some time with Jesus. And that's 15 minutes. God's not despising her 15 minutes. God's heart is moved that she would confess a need in that place to be with him. It looks so different for, for different people. You might feel like you don't have any bandwidth to add in prayer. Ask God for grace. Corporate prayer is the last thing, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward at this time. Corporate prayer is an awesome way to develop a prayer life. I spent uh, a number of months at the International House of Prayer doing an internship there, and I would hear people pray, and I would say, I want to pray like that. Like, she just prayed with such boldness and confidence. I want to pray like that. That can be something that stirs your heart, is corporate prayer. And it can provide consistency for you in prayer. Honestly, I'm the mission pastor, and I can struggle with praying for our missionaries. And yet I know when there is a corporate time for us to gather that is a time that I know I'm going to be praying. It helps with consistency. We do a prayer every morning at 7.30 um, for our services on Sunday. You're welcome to join us. We do a missional prayer once a month. You're welcome to join us. There's a group that gathers just to pray for the youth. You could pray in your small group together. Designate one night a month just for prayer and worship in your small group and allow the Lord to move and stir in your heart. Beloved, pray. 
Prayer is a hospital that facilitates healing. It's a greenhouse that catalyzes growth. It's a furnace that reveals the depths of our hearts. It is a battlefield where war is waged and it is a fortress to hide in when storms are raging. You have a father. Be with him. Talk to him. Let's go ahead and stand.